I knew something new was happening in America. And words have been thrown around about cancel culture and political correctness. <clears throat> I had enough of a theology training to realize that this isn't just politics. This is a new religious movement. There are always tough choices. And the Christian claim is that notwithstanding all the brokenness, all the bloodshed, there is forgiveness. To believe that we are forgiven means that we're not in control. And we so desperately want to be in control. Uh, and so the hardest part of Christianity is the understanding that, that you're forgiven for your sins and you can have it tomorrow. You don't have to carry this burden with you forever. Uh, but with identity politics, you do carry the burden with you forever. You are forever stained if you're a certain group and there's no way you can get out of it. I'm fully willing to accept all the hideousness, all the ugliness of American history. Uh, but the conclusion I reach is a different one than the left reaches. The left concludes that because it's hideous and deformed uh, and, and racist, therefore it's irredeemable. And the Christian answer is no. All those things happened and more, but that's not the final word in history. Hope is the final word in history. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Connection Podcast. I'm really excited you're here for this conversation with Joshua Mitchell, author of the most amazing book, American Awakening. I read this book in the beginning of the year and was just blown away by Joshua's insights into our current culture and two of my favorite things to talk about, politics and religion. Trust me, I am a hit at all the family gatherings. But Joshua describes with such clarity why the moment we're in cannot be chalked up to the usual suspects, either cultural Marxism or progressivism. His claim is that what we're, and particularly the conservative movement, is up against is something completely different. Identity politics is the new religion, only without repentance or forgiveness, two imperative tenets of Christianity. I could rant on and on about this, but it's better to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. So without further ado, I bring you Joshua Mitchell. All right. Should we dive in? Sure. Do you see my book? I mean, this might be the wow. most tabbed book I have. Wow. So very good. nice. Um, but tell me, why did you decide to write it? What was the inspiration for it? How long did it take? Because there's a lot of meaty stuff in here. There's a lot of good stuff. Yeah. So my writing habits um, are, are ones that I can't fully comprehend. What happens is that I'll have long periods of fallow where you know, I write a little bit here and there, but, but then something will happen and a book will be written in, in eight months. And this book was written in eight months. I was at the Heritage Foundation with, <clears throat> with Arthur Millick and David Azarad, and we were in one shop and it just poured out for it was really six months. Uh, and, uh, and I wrote it because I knew something new was happening in America and words have been thrown around about cancel culture and political correctness. Uh, C CRT hadn't yet been invented. The 1619 project wasn't around, but I had enough of a theology training to realize that this isn't just politics. This is a new religious movement. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I became increasingly dissatisfied with the right talking about this as if it's progressivism or cultural Marxism. And I said, no, this is something entirely new. And I will say my big disappointment has been that wherever I go, I still find people who want to look at this 
in terms of categories that have been around since, you know, the 1970s and 1980s. And I think conservatives have been completely caught off guard. And one of the problems, maybe one of the biggest problems they face is that they're still using an old vocabulary for something new that has swept across America in no time. Mm. So, you so think, oh, go ahead. Uh, I just, uh, I, I've concluded that the conservative movement really has problems right now. Um, yes, there's a reconfiguration uh, around what's called around Trump. Uh, but and, and while I think that's important because it focuses in on the middle class, it focuses in on not having endless wars abroad. I think domestically conservatives have no idea what they're dealing with. Hmm. And what are they dealing with? They're dealing with a religious movement, an American awakening without God and without forgiveness. Uh, every day in America, you can see evidence of people uh, trying to uh, trying to cover their stain. It's the we're all we're all Jews, and by that I mean uh, every single day in America, Americans are practicing a Passover ritual, where they paint the blood of innocence on their front door so that God will pass over them and not bring social death. So Black Lives Matter signs in your front yard, mm. uh, indicators on your on your car, uh, in your office, through your speaking, that you're on the right side morally, that you're pure and not stained. It's all about purity and stain. You mm. can't have politics when it's about purity and stain. Politics is about solving particular problems. Uh, and, but we're not doing that right now. We're trying to figure out who's pure and who's stained. And the left claims to know who they are, and it's the the irredeemables. And it's a religious war in this country right now. Mm. So one thing I wanted to get at immediately is what you say in the Alexander Solzhenitsyn's um, quote of, if humanism were right in declaring that man is born to be happy, he would not be born to die. Since his body is doomed to die, his task on earth evidently must be of a more spiritual nature. So the whole book rests in that premise that man is of a spiritual nature. And yeah. I know enough people that would argue with, with that. So how do you make this argument that this is some sort of spiritual battle, that what we're going through is spiritual warfare, or that this is not really po political, right? The, what you're alluding to, yeah. um, when they dismiss that premise. Yeah begin with how do you have this how do you have this conversation do you just skip the conversation then do you say okay well then it's it's hopeless if they actually the root of it is not agreed upon yeah so for example think about uh commentators who say look everything's getting better every day we have increased standards of living look at the material world mm. uh everything's fine and if you just look at the material world, there's no question. But in the last 50 years, thanks to some variant of capitalism, uh, billions of people have been lifted out of poverty. So as an objective measure, that's true. But in the book, what I say is there's there, there's three three economies. Two of them conservatives get, and the third one they have no idea about. And, and that's the reason why identity politics is running over them like a steamroller. So what conservatives get is is that there's a, a debt pertaining to money and markets and the people who talk about free markets understand this. And this is wonderful. It's, it's part of our world, uh, the monetary debt that, that capitalism talks about. Um, and then the second understanding of debt that conservatives have 
is the debt we owe our fathers. And another way to put this is tradition. Mm -hmm. And conservatives are really good at talking about free markets and about tradition. But there's a third kind of economy, which is this, the spiritual economy. Um, and it's, it's not so easy to identify. It's something that I think we all know about, uh, but it's deeper than money. It's deeper than tradition. Uh, for example, in America, there's a, there's a sense of a, uh, a kind of a debt that's owed, say, uh, uh, blacks because of slavery. This, is, this can't quite be rendered in terms of money. Talk about tradition doesn't get at it, but there's a sense that there's a deep stain here that, that we have to somehow fix. There's another economy that where payments are made uh, or, or payments owed that can't be reduced to money. So the best example, by, by the way, this, despite the the attempt to do that, right, with reparations, there's no way, no matter how much money we give people, that is not the proper compensation. Yeah. So if somebody says, well, you owe $26,000 and, and that's the end of any talk about racism or slavery in America, I think I'd write the check. Uh, but the point here is that, uh, and I think a lot of people would write the check, but the point is this is a kind of economy that, that money can't solve. There's no possible way. And the, there's a great biblical example of this, and this is Judas, because Judas betrays Christ because he's thinking in terms of the moneyed economy. He wants a social justice movement. Judas is the first social justice warrior. Mm -hmm. He wants to fix society through redistribution. Uh, and, and Christ announces that the, the, the oil that, that has been purchased and poured out on him uh, is, it has, pertains to some other kind of economy, the glory of God. And Judas can't handle this. And so he betrays Christ. Right. And so Christ is announcing the forgiveness of sin, which is, it's, it has nothing to do with money. And my larger point in the book is that part of the reason why identity politics is sweeping through America, through the Netherlands, through the UK, through countries that have been prominently been Protestant in the past, is that Protestant countries, I think slightly more than Catholic countries, have a very dark and deep view of original sin, a debt that cannot be repaid. And the argument of the book is that this, this was once largely confined to our churches, it was understood as a theological category, but as the churches have faltered in America, uh, what's happened is this idea of debt can no longer be worked through in the churches because it's all God is love. There is no judgment. It's all God is love. But but because this spiritual debt is very real uh, and we're going to have to figure out a way to deal with it, when you lose the language of the church to deal with it, you get a political movement that deals with it. And so what we have is that we have an established church. People are arguing, well, you know, there's Christian nationalism and this is this tremendous threat. My argument is we have an established church in America. It's the church of identity politics where you have the elect and the reprobate. It's clearly a religious movement that is trying to solve the problem of stain. But Christianly speaking, you cannot solve the problem of stain and impurity and toxicity. If you want to talk about a toxic masculinity or clean and dirty fuels, you can't do it in the world because the stain is so deep that Christ himself had to come into the world to lift it from us. And so you've got this movement that, that at least understands that there's a profound debt that can't be captured by what we owe to our fathers and can't be captured by free market economics, economics, but, but it has nowhere to go 
It doesn't, it's halfway Christianity. It's a Christian heresy and so seeks to solve the problem of debt by purging groups. And so the first group to be purged is the white heterosexual males, we know. And my point in the book is that's not the end of it. Christianly speaking, Christianly speaking, God once and for all time came into the world. It was the one sufficient sacrifice after which there's no more sacrifices. And so Christianly speaking, you don't have to purge groups. In fact, purging groups won't solve your problem because the stain is deep within and only God can help you with it. There's no purging of some external object and and you're safe. But the problem is we've returned to a kind of pre-Christian understanding where, no, you do purge your stain by by purging other people. And I think the... Yes, sacrificing, but and I'll, you know, we can talk about uh, how we're sacrificing our children on the altar of transgenderism, mm. uh, but but also clean and dirty fossil fuels. This there is mm-hmm. no clean and dirty in nature. Uh, it's clean and dirty. In fact, the term pollution is not a scientific term. It's a religious term that then gets applied to science. So we're a profoundly religious country right now, but just in a highly distorted way. It's so funny you mentioned the electric thing, because that was one of the notes I took yesterday, this idea of clean and dirty. I mean, it reminds me of the black and white thinking that what I see typically comes from the progressive left, right? And I put that down, gas gas stoves dirty, electric clean, um, yeah. without acknowledging that a lot of the a lot of what powers electric, unless you go to renewables, which is not sustainable, which isn't isn't widely available, which can't power an entire city, um, you have to go to coal to have electric, you know, you have to, something is going to be, you know, compromised and that, that progressives have this idea of, nope, this is good. And this yeah. is bad without acknowledging, say for electric, the, the child slavery in Africa that has to occur for or the cobalt mining, for the cobalt for mining, for all of the, yeah. the rich minerals And so it's just this lack of, I don't mind giving people that choice saying, here's an electric car, here's a gas powered car, but let's have an honest discussion, at least be transparent with, with what you're talking about. And they never are. It's like electric. Great. It's just saying that's good. Everything else is bad. And then you're forced, you know, like New York banning gas stoves. They said, you will not. I don't know why I I love gas stoves. I love cooking on them. (laughs) Can't stand electric, and I was like, "Over my dead body, are you coming from like <laughs> my gas stove from like 1960s that I have? Yeah. Like this one of these, and they cook amazing." Um, so so it's so the problem. So you mentioned so the natural gas thing is interesting because okay, let uh, you know I'm not gonna. Uh, are we changing the planet uh, because we're here in large numbers? Yeah, yeah, we are, uh, but. But what's interesting is we have a way, let's let's presume that somehow we have to reduce the carbon footprint. I'm not fully convinced because the carbon is available in such low doses in the atmosphere. We're going to have a huge proliferation of plants and things like that. But okay, let's accept the hypothesis that we we probably should be cutting back. Uh, The problem here is zero tolerance cleanliness. So the environmental movement Mm -hmm. looks at natural gas, which has a very low carbon footprint compared to, say, coal or oil. And they said, no, 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 it's it's still impure. And so if we wanted to move in the direction of, of cleaning up the amount of coal or reducing the amount of coal, natural gas is the perfect fuel mm-hmm. uh, and, and nuclear too. But what's happening is that you've got this view that we can have an absolutely clean environment. And as you say, 
the, the only way this is possible is if we outsource the stuff. And so we'd look around and we don't see the, the heavy metals mining in America. We've basically shut down those mines. China is polluting its groundwater, killing its people with cancer because all those heavy metals uh, that are needed for the, the new, new solar economy, you know, they have to come out of the ground, ground. they're mined by diesel, uh, diesel vehicles that dig it and carry it. it it's just as environmentally dirty uh, as, as relying on uh, hydrochemicals, uh, but we're not paying attention to that, or we've, we've got a way of outsourcing it, not in my backyard, and so we export mm-hmm. this stuff overseas. So it's deeply troubling. The Christian understanding, which I, I'm, I'm including, inclined always to think is, is really the only antidote here, is the, the world is broken. The world will never be made pure. Uh, our, our labor in the world of time is to live within a, a dirtied world, and this has political implications too. Uh, and uh, as a consequence, we we know there will be cleanliness at, cleanliness at the end of time. But in the meantime, there are no easy moral choices, and this shows up in terms of environmentalism versus stewardship. If you are steward, you 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 know you're already in the world. You're going to make choices. Some things are going to die. Some things are going to live. But that's the cost of life. Just as when we go to the grocery store, you're you're eating animals that have been slaughtered. You know that, right? Uh, you, you have. To, there are always tough choices, and the Christian claim is that notwithstanding all the brokenness, all, all the bloodshed, there is forgiveness. And I often think that um, that I think the reason why Christianity um, is so difficult to accept is often claimed to be the idea of original sin. I don't think that's the big one. I think the big one is forgiveness. Mm-hmm. To believe that we are forgiven means that we're not in control. And we so desperately want to be in control. Uh, and so the hardest part of Christianity is the understanding that that you're forgiven for your sins and you can have it tomorrow. You don't have to carry this burden with you forever. Uh, but with identity politics, you do carry the burden with you forever. You are forever stained if you're a certain group, and there's no way you can get out of it. And maybe we could talk about what the implications of that are at some point, because it is the the Nietzschean alt-right where people, and this is especially true of young men, more so in Europe than in the United States, but it's growing in the United States, young men who finally say, I don't care anymore. I won't carry this burden of slavery, colonialism, World War One, World War II, the whole cost. I don't even care anymore. And that's the movement I'm most afraid of. Mm. Why? Because I I think the Christian formula is is the healthiest one. Forget whether it's the truest one. It's it's healthy because it recognizes that to be human is always to be rebellious and to turn away from God. And as a consequence, the whole bloody history of humankind. That is the consequence. But that's not the final word. And so to be human is, is, to, is to sin, uh, presumably in a, in a healthy world, to recognize this, to atone, to repent, to, to try to begin anew, but to fully understand that this is only possible through divine grace and forgiveness. And so uh, unlike, say, conservatives who look at the 1619 Project, which says that America is systemically racist, and respond by saying, no, America's pure, I don't go that route. I'm fully willing to accept all the hideousness, all the ugliness of American history, 
but the conclusion I reach is a different one than the left reaches. The left concludes that because it's hideous and deformed uh, and, and racist, therefore it's irredeemable. And the Christian answer is no, all those things happened and more. So anything that the left can throw at a Christian, the Christian will say, yup, and it's probably a thousand times worse than that too. You don't respond by saying, no, 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 it's not that bad. No, you respond by saying, you don't even know how dark the human heart can be. Mm. Uh, and, and then the next thing you say is, but that's not the final word in history. Hope is the final word in history. And so I think if you can retain the Christian idea of guilt, but also have forgiveness and atonement, then you can take responsibility for things that have happened. But, but by taking responsibility, you simply don't wear it as a dead weight that will destroy you. You, you take responsibility and then you say, there's forgiveness, atonement, and now let us move forward with what we have learned. And I think the tragedy of the identity politics left is that while it, uh, unlike the conservative movement, will see the full darkness of the human soul and human history, there's no mechanism for atonement except purging. And this is deeply, deeply destructive. Uh, and, and I think in the final analysis, we're either going to have to return to this Christian pairing of, of sin and grace, which allows us ultimately to recognize both the gravity of, of the illness of human life and, and also the profound hope that God gives us. It's either going to be that or we're going to move into this new Nietzschean moment. And, and Friedrich Nietzsche called for this in the 1880s, where we say to all the transgressions in human history, we don't care. A and let's add, and we would do them again, because that's the most important point, is that we don't care if we do them again. That's where, where the alt-right is ultimately going. So I think that's where we are uh, in, in the 21st century. We're either going to have to go back and, and recover the full understanding of spiritual debt, meaning both the debt and the grace and forgiveness, or, uh, or we're going to abandon, we're truly going to abandon the Christian project. Uh, and, and so we'll, have, we'll go back to what Nietzsche called an aristocracy of cruelty, where the only categories that matter are strength and weakness. And I don't want that. Mm. You um, you mentioned something about uh, progressives kind of demanding sacrifice, or um, is that what you? Um, yeah, well, of children. Yeah, yeah, but I think they do that, or or a fealty to a, another god other than a Christian god, meaning the god of LGBTQ, or bow down to that. You know, you must bow down to the environment god or yeah. gay rights God, or the gender God. Um, and that's what, you know, that's what bothers me. Like it's it's force forcing people, you'll lose your job or the or the vaccination God or the science God, you know, yeah. name, your, name your alternative false. Yeah, so the, the left is, so I, I increasingly don't want to use the word progressives. I'll call them the new elect. And then and the elect, are, it's a category within Christianity and specifically within Calvinism. Uh, and, the, and the new elect know, know what, what their gods want. And those who don't are the reprobate who have to be cast out. And they, they're the ones who burn in hell. And so, yes, we have these new idols, is what I would say, uh, which you're not allowed to doubt. Now, the interesting thing about the transgender movement is that I think people are really starting to push back on this. Mm -hmm. 
the the piece that I mean, there are many pieces that that trouble me, uh, but the to, to return to what I said a minute ago about sacrifice, I've heard so many mothers in the last five years say things like, "I hope my son or daughter uh, is gay," or uh, you know, if they, if they believe they're transgender, I'm going to encourage this. And I have increasingly come to view this as mothers looking for a way in which they themselves can be seen as pure. Mm -hmm. And so if they encourage their child to become a member of one of these innocence categories, because that's the only category that has the right to speak and the right to be heard. If you encourage your child to be a member of one of these innocence categories, you yourself purchase innocence in the broader uh, arena of society. Young people today, are are so troubled. Uh, we know the statistics about depression and attempts at suicide, uh, in in part because they're the ones who have grown up fully in this new world in which the only thing that matters is purity and stain. I'm considerably older than you, but you you also grew up in a world where this was somewhat foreign, and so we're encountering this rather late in our lives, and so have correctives to it. When you have a younger generation that has only grown up in it. And, a, and where boys, for example, have been told that they are toxic. Uh, I know what I would do if I were a young boy of this generation. I would be looking everywhere for ways in which I could avert social death. What, what would I have to declare in order for social death to pass me by? Well, first, I would have to declare that, that masculinity is a scale between masculinity and femininity. And you can never be a five, because if you're a five, you are deservant of being of being purged. And so young boys in high school will say to their friends, well, today I'm a two or a three. Heaven forbid that you're a five. You always have to be something that's not masculine. Um, they feel themselves to be victims of climate change. Y you must indicate that you are the innocent victim. This is the central category. And this is a profoundly Christian category. And this is something that Nietzsche pointed out, is that what completely changed the world was this Christian understanding of the innocent victim, that weakness is strength, that invisibility um, is, is something that has to be made visible. So the innocent victim is, is like Christ in that initially he is, first of all, scapegoated. And it turns out that we should have listened to him. So in front of Pontius Pilate, he says nothing. So the characteristic of the innocent victim is that they're silenced. And so what has to happen in identity politics is that we have to give the voice to the innocent victim, and then those who are not innocent victims have to shut up. This is, I think, part of the reason why there's a fierce attack on Western civilization, Western culture, because these, uh, I'll put it in air, air, air quotes, this, the, the whites have had their say, uh, and, and as a consequence, the innocent victims have been silenced, and now it's time to completely rewrite history and to silence those who heretofore have been the oppressors and so let's get rid of Western culture. Let's get rid of Western civilization and, and hear the voices of the other innocents. So the only way young people have a right to speak and the right to be heard is if, uh, is if they are an innocent victim. They have to. And so there's no way that you're going to get anything like, uh, for lack of a better word, a conventional young boy or young girl coming out of this generation. They, owe, they must be innocent victims or they have no right to speak. I would be petrified and and despairing every single day of my life if that were the environment that the only environment that I knew. Mm.
Well, put it in very different terms than a lot of just these black and white psychology, you know, it's TikTok or social media. That's, that's that's amazing. Well, it's feeding on the social media thing is feeding on it. And young girls, as you know, are, are completely consumed by Instagram and TikTok. And I think boys more, more by YouTube, but the social media thing is making it worse, but still it's, it's making it worse because we're not providing in everyday life the real life markers um, that children desperately need to develop anything like normalcy. So I hear mothers constantly saying, well, I'm not going to tell my daughter about, about having children. That's her choice. So there's no encouragement to become a mother, uh, to recognize that y- you you alone uh, can, can bring into the world immortal souls. This is kind of important, uh, but mothers are not teaching their children that, or their daughters that. Fathers are not teaching their boys that it's it's okay and must be encouraged that you believe in, in protecting uh, and defending and sacrificing. They're giving given no signals. Uh, and so the only thing they can find in, in the way of guidance are these uh, these uh, viruses that intellectual viruses that get passed along on social media. I just stumbled upon a podcast yesterday with two authors of this book called Them Before Us, or Us Before Them, or Them Before, one of them, Them Before Us. It is called Them Before Us. Um, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. Have you heard this book, about this book? No. So Uh it's two women. One is the wife of a, I think, a Baptist pastor. um, And it sounds like support for affirmation, right? Affirming our child's children's rights movement. It's the exact opposite. And it's pointing to exactly what you're saying is that the selfish needs of adults are coming before our children's. And they say our selfish needs, meaning I need to make sure my sexual desires are affirmed and that that's hurting children where it's putting the selfish desires of parents, of adults, before the children. It was such an interesting insight. And I'm not sure that once I read the book, I'll agree with everything, but I think for the most part, I will, because it's saying, like you had said, this is one way, particularly for mothers to feel pure, right. By by doing this for their children. Like I'm the, I'm the anointed one. Yeah. So let me tell you a story about, uh, an early piece of evidence of this. So my mother's generation, so my mother was born in 1930. Uh, my mother's generation, w- when they had children, you know, went to the hospital, maybe some of them had births at home. But but the issue was making sure that the child was b- born in a healthy way. And that was it. There, w- there was no what I now call cult of the mother. But what began to happen in the early 80s I think maybe yeah, early 80s, I mean, 83, 84. I remember this very, very distinctly. All of a sudden, there was all this chatter about, about natural childbirth. And everything was going to be natural. And I know so many cases in which mothers of my generation insisted on this, ultimately to the detriment of their children. They had to be rushed into C-section uh, because the babies were not going to come out through natural childbirth. But but suddenly women insisted 
without saying so directly that the the birth experience I mean, think about the term the birth experience they wanted to have a good birth experience and so everything was suddenly about making sure that the mother had a good birth experience it wasn't really about the child it was about the mother's mm. birth experience and this began, in my view, the cult of, of, of motherhood. And, uh, and I think you see it, the, the latest version of this may still be in terms of how you have a baby. But, but I'm, I'm terribly troubled by uh, when I hear mothers saying things like, I really hope my child grows up gay or transgender. Look, these are <clears throat> human sexuality <clears throat> is a deeply mysterious thing. And I'm not, not going to profess to fully understand it here. But, but it does seem to me that actively encouraging um, children in certain directions that are nonconformist, as it were, is doing something more for the parent than it is for the child. Yeah, to me, what it boils down to is just this extreme sense of narcissism in this culture. Yeah. You know, self-love, self-help, self-self. And I, I was in it. I was full on, as you know, deep in it. Um, thinking that it was good. I, I just personally related so much to the, the, the experience you were speaking of um, about never being clean enough, right? Never being perfect enough, always needing to, to fix myself or help myself. And right. none of this forgiveness, none of this surrender, which I, I think is a key thing for yes. me is to surrender that control. And when I gave my life back to Jesus, that all went away. Like all of the things that you're talking about, I can so clearly identify with and how depressed I was and how troubled yeah. I was and disturbed mentally and, and spiritually and all under the guise though of spirituality, really this vague sort of universe. Right. All, I, all the language, right? It was just, I don't know. So okay. one of the paradoxes that I, I deal with the book in the, in the book, and I wish I had done more with it, <clears throat> um, is that the flip side of of narcissistic self-satisfaction, which which everybody is encouraged to to find, the flip side is is the sense of utter impotence, utter nothingness, utter despair. And I think a, a culture that that thinks that it can be self-referential or man-centered is bound to oscillate back and forth between these incredible highs. Like, I don't need to depend on anyone or I don't need to depend upon God. I am my own God. There is no creator in creation. But the flip side is, and that's a high because you're not dependent on anything. But the flip side is feeling utterly impotent, utterly enslaved. And I think that's one of the great characteristics of this movement. So I think part of the answer we have to give to those who say, uh, well, we do live in a godless world, and I am living in a world of self-creation, transgenderism being the full, and ultimately transhumanism being the full implication of that. I think what you have to do is you have to ask the question, how's that working for you? Because if this is right, if, if this theory is right, then then while they do have moments of complete liberation and they would look at Christians as being somehow dependent on God, and, and of course, which would you prefer to be independent or dependent? If, if what I'm saying is right, then, then the flip side of their 
their seeming independence is utter servitude to the latest passing fashions, a sense of utter impotence and, and depression. Uh, it, it, this has got to be the flip side. And it's, I found this first. So I came, I grew up in a very secular household in Ann Arbor, Michigan in the 60s. We, we didn't, God talked that, we just laughed at that. But, uh, but what was happening uh, in, in my own life was that I was oscillating back and forth and back and forth. And suddenly, I guess I must have been in my 20s, in my 20s, I stumbled upon St. Augustine in the Confessions. And and he says in the very first chapter of of the first book, he says, there is no rest until I rest in thee. And in the Confessions, what you see is this brilliant man who oscillates back and forth between believing that he's the king of the world and and then collapsing into himself and feeling the nothingness of existence. And the whole book is this movement back and forth between these two psychological moments. Um, But he announces really in the first chapter what the resolution of it is, which is there is no rest until I rest in thee, until you rest in God. So I think this manic depression thing is a very serious way to, to think about the problem because it, it offsets the argument that to be dependent is to be enslaved. Mm-hmm. No, no, to be dependent upon God is to be able to live a full life, to be to live within bounded freedom, and so to avoid the the horrors of this oscillation back and forth between mania and depression. And manic depression, as you know, is is probably the most uh, subscribed illness, has most number of people who have been diagnosed with it anything on the planet. Mm. And we haven't mentioned his name, but Alexis de Tocqueville predicted this. He said, when you're, when you no longer have connections to people, when the links between human beings are broken, then the soul swings back and forth between too much and too little. Mm. And so that's, that's the problem is that we we're living, we're, we're hoping back to your point about narcissism. We want to cut all the ties so we can be completely dependent upon ourselves, And that just enslaves us to depression. It's a catastrophe, which the younger generation especially feels. Yeah, it's you're hitting on all the things that I was thinking about last night, because when you take a a zoom out and a really broad overview of what you're talking about, it's this balance. It's this balance between the right and the left. It's this balance between freedom and bondage. It's this balance. Like you said, I think you said bounded freedom. And that is what I keep trying to reiterate is that freedom and what I learned through my own spiritual journey, freedom does not mean the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want it. Right. I got to make my own schedule. I I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I had no real limits on my life. i lived by myself. I had, you know, as the, as, as strange as it sounds, one of the best things I ever did was get a cat, not because, I mean, <laughs> because I love cats, but, and, and listen, it is nominal responsibility, right? Very little, that's why versus a dog, I could go out of town and not have to worry, but there were some yeah. responsibilities, particularly where I was living because I lived in a canyon and I wanted my kitty to be able to go outside, but then at night I wanted to make sure. Right. It, it was almost like more like having a dog because my cats would come, my cat would come in, or at least one of them, um, when I fed her. So yeah. I had to be home before it got dark. 
you know, those kinds of little things, restrictions. Um, I know that's a silly example, but it, for me in my life, that was the most responsibility for another little creature that I had had up to that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then school, you know, having assignments due and then, you know, it was two, two year delayed gratification, but I, I graduated three weeks ago and I, that sense of accomplishment, I haven't had that in so long. I mean, I, I had these successes at work, but it, it wasn't the same of like that long road right. flow of just constant work. And then yeah. that feeling of elation and that reward, um, and I'm not saying you're always going for, you know, the next thing, but that, that effort that I forgot that hard work and effort really pay off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I have an equivalent story, uh, which I have never told. Uh, so uh, I, I probably had a learning disability. And the reason I'm saying that is it took me a number of years to get through college, six and a half years. And then even then I, I, I had a very serious, serious learning disability. And so I decided, uh, I, I was going to be a musician on the road and I was a musician on the road and, and it was a life of utter irresponsibility, as you can imagine. And, and, and I oscillated back and forth between these tremendous highs of being up on stage and then, then the tremendous lows of, you know, going home to an empty hotel room where, where you answered to nobody and nobody answered to you. And I did this for a couple of years and I realized to the point about bounded freedom, this is not going to work for me. And it, it was at that point I decided to go back to school and get involved in the long road of, of getting a uh, you know higher degree. And what was funny was I this is would have been uh, early 80s or so. I met so many people in in various PhD programs who had done the exact same thing I did. They had lived this musician's life of oscillating back and forth between highs and lows because they had radical freedom and nothing constrained them. And and they said, no, I, I need something bounded I, or else I'm going to end up killing myself or dying of drug overdose or something else. So we we can't, there is no freedom in unbounded freedom. It's just, it, it leads to complete paralysis and unhappiness. And it's probably a lesson that everyone has to learn along the way, but when to come back to young kids, but when they're, when they're not told, uh, honey, you're, you're a woman, you've, you've got a womb, you've got this incredible gift. Let me encourage you to be a mother, uh, son. I'm, I'm going to encourage you to, in, in a particular direction, because to be a man is, is to be bound by these things, uh, whether you like it or not. You're not your own. I guess maybe that's the central lesson. You are not your own. And what we're teaching young people today is know they're their own. They can make any choice they want, which leads them to have no constraints whatsoever, and and that's led to profound unhappiness. And then. They're being encouraged by student affairs officers and colleges and psychologists and pharmaceutical companies to take paths that, that would have been beyond our wildest dreams 10 or 20 years ago. So we're at a moment of profound unhappiness, but here, let's, let's do it this way. Um, it's a mission field. It, there, are, there are millions, tens of millions, 100 million people in America who are profoundly unhappy and know this isn't working. And so they're searching. And I think this is one thing that some conservatives get a bit upset with me. I say identity politics in a way gets something right, which conservatives don't, which is there is this spiritual economy. There, there's this world of, of debt that, that we can't even name, and we try to name it by calling it 
the legacy of slavery or or World War One, World War Two, all these debts that we we sense we have. But it's ultimately it's ultimately a sense of our own brokenness, which can't be solved by saying it's that out there. Ultimately, what we have to say is, no, it's in here. And there's plenty of evidence in my life. If you've lived, you know, a couple of dozen years, uh, you you know already there's a problem inside. And so there's no way of externalizing it. Uh, and so th that's where I think there's people who are doing this right now at least know that there's this unpayable debt out there. They just don't know how to cash in on it. The way I put it increasingly is identity politics is is Christianity that feasts on crumbs. Mm. It, it has it has some it, it has fragments of Christianity. It knows that there's debt. It knows that there's an innocent victim. It knows there needs to be a scapegoat. All these things are profoundly Christian. In fact, can't be understood without Christianity. And so uh, I, I think what we have to do is to say, you're partly right. Microaggressions, unconscious bias, this is called sin. It's, it's the fact that each one of us is prideful. And if you think it's just limited to race, you have a deeply impoverished understanding of the extent to which sin operates in every domain of human life. It's, it's race, gender, it's, it's everything you can possibly think of where there could be prejudice. It's that every single morning, which is why we pray. So I think the, the constructive answer is not, it's not simply to oppose, though we have to oppose it because it's going to end up destroying everything. It's to say, look, you're on the trail, but you need to come home now. I mean, there is a homecoming for you here. It's a much deeper understanding of the innocent victim, the one sufficient innocent victim who takes away the sins of the world. We are all irredeemable. It's not just there's those people out there that are irredeemable. You are too. And, and you know that because you keep searching for some way to cover yourself with the mantle of innocence. So you know that you're guilty. You know this. So stop pretending it's someone out there. Mm -hmm. So so we have, that's why I said a minute ago, this is a mission field. We have a profound moment in American history where people know stain is real. And in conservatives who talk about free markets and the debt we owe to our fathers, it, it doesn't even come close, mm -hmm. which is why conservatives have no way of grasping the depth of this identity politics thing. So if it can be turned, we would have another great awakening in this country. How do we do it? We ask the question, how's that working for you? Mm. Because you keep finding new innocent victims and you keep scapegoating and yet you go to sleep at night haunted by guilt. And, and you're not going to find it by scapegoating other people. You can't because the problem is inside. So I think we have to invite people to a fuller understanding uh, of the one that they have. That's why it's not, so there's a, there's a the distinction between heresy and apostasy, right? Apostasy is where you completely reject everything. Uh, but heresy is where you take parts of it and twist it around. And some people will say, well, look, identity politics is so opposed to Christianity, it must be an apostasy. But my argument is it's not an apostasy at all. It's a heresy. It, it uses the central categories of Christianity, the scapegoat, irredeemable sin, the innocent victim. But it completely reconfigures them uh, so that instead of thinking of this vertically as a Christian would, right, we on the ground are irredeemably stained. The innocent victim is vertically above us, God the Son, uh, who also is the scapegoat who takes away the sins of the world. No, identity politics makes this horizontal. So we look outward 
and and those people over there are irredeemably sinned and and these people over here are the innocent victims so it's a horizontal movement as opposed to a vertical one mm. so i i think we can point out that that you're moving in the right direction you've got you're sort of onto something but but as we know the, the people who do the most damage are the ones who in a way are closest to the truth but distort it i mean plato said this in the republic um you, you can expect nothing greater evil for mediocrity the, the real the real evil comes from those who come close to getting it and so that in a way we we should always recognize not in a way we should always recognize that this is a heresy and heresies can be corrected and if you ask me i've only said this three times i don't think many groups have understood this we're in a strange moment i think in western history because the great the last great division in the west anyway forget the earlier division between the eastern church and the western church right in 1054 but the last great division was in the reformation where, where the reformers emerged and say, you know, pick it 1517 with Luther and uh, the publication of Freedom of a Christian, or maybe it was the 95 Theses, I don't remember which, but what was that great division about? It was about the extent to which sin prevails and how can it be atoned for? I mean, that's that was the big debate in the Reformation. And I see this as a moment where the people aren't using the word sin, they're using the word irredeemables and things like this, but uh, but I see this as a moment where this heresy, which recognizes the depth of stain, can be brought back into the church, and we can have now a conversation between the two groups that divided in 1517, Protestants and Catholics. We, we need to rethink the depth of sin and how it can be atoned for. And so my my grandest dream, which may come true in who knows how long, maybe another 100 years, is that this movement called identity politics, which sees stain and sin everywhere, might be an occasion for Christianity as a whole to come back together again with a deeper understanding uh, of, of, of sin uh, and bring it. We have to bring this back into the churches, because when you only have the God of love outside inside the churches, you're going to have identity politics outside the churches. Some some institution has to address the problem of how deep the stain of man is and the churches refuse. And so identity politics steps in. Hmm. So how do we do this though, in a very increasingly secular society? That's my question for people that don't even kind of going back to my original question is that don't even have agree with the concept that we're spiritual beings or agree with Christianity or, you know, so that, that just hate Christianity, you know? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of kinds of hate Christianity. One is the heretics and identity politics that don't understand they are distorted Christians and they want their own mm. version of it. Mm -hmm. But then, but then there are, you know, I think you're right there. I, and I counter this when I talk to groups, there's always someone in the audience who will say this idea of sin and guilt, I just don't feel it. Mm. And I think there is a portion of the population that just genuinely doesn't feel this deep sense of sin and guilt but i don't think that's a majority and i think the proof of that is the extent to which american society as a whole now is just full of people who are desperately trying to solve their inner problem of of stain uh, you know i think diversity equity inclusion training i mean think about that it, that is an attempt so i think dei is is a way for people to do penance uh, so i think there are there are 
what we have to focus on is what identity politics is always focusing on, which is the extent to which there's all, all these sins and crimes out there. I mean, the whole purpose of the university now seems to be to discover ever more crimes of, of Western civilization. And I'm not totally opposed to that because I think ultimately you you don't, you know this, you, you don't turn to Christ unless there's a a profound and an unanswerable indictment of your life. It's it's only when when there's no exit, when you realize, oh my goodness, the whole of this is messed up. And I, I have to put my hands up and say, here, will you please take this? Because I can't. So in, in one sense, the, the ever-expanding project of identity politics to see sin and transgression everywhere is part of the Christian autobiographical journey that comes back to God. But here's the problem. Uh, until that happens, we're living in this moment where we are in danger of having everything destroyed. So the family is impure, therefore it has to be destroyed. The church uh, ha has certain views of sexuality, therefore it must be destroyed. All of our monuments must be destroyed. The problem is if you're still in this moment of, if you're in this the particular place where you're you're consumed by, by impurity, by, by the impurity of the world, there's several ways you can go. One is to say, there is no answer to the problem of the impurities in the world, in the world. That's the God answer. And the other way, and this has always been, this has been the revolutionary impulse from the French Revolution through Marxism and now through identity politics, is to purge the impure ones. So in the French Revolution, it was, let's purge the churches and destroy the aristocratic class. In Marxism, it was, let's destroy the bourgeois class, the owners of property. And now with identity politics, let's destroy those with the impure identities. It's this belief that somehow you can solve the problem of the filth in the world by cleaning up the world. And that means destroying everything that's even remotely unclean. And that turns out to be every human institution, every nation, every human being, every family, every church. So, so we're approaching this critical moment where where in fact we're thanks to identity politics we're seeing stain everywhere but the question is what do you do it do with it and the christian says yep it's it's everywhere we're, we're not going to find enough clean clean fuels clean solar energy because it's outsourced over there so the, the, the christian has to point out that there will never be cleanliness in the world that's the, the most important thing and and only i think only when you realize that there's no solution to the problems of the world in the world solar energy, fusion, but no solution that will not also lead to a further kind of dirtiness. Then and then alone, do you turn to God and say, you alone are pure. I mean, the, the basic insight of the Hebrew Bible, God alone is pure. We are impure. This is why the Hebrews at the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus begin by washing themselves because they're going to go up to the Mount and see God. And they realize it doesn't matter how much soap you put on your body. You are impure. So Moses, you go. Let us know how that works. But but we're not going up there. So it, right there, that that passage in Exodus is in a way the paradigm for the whole of human history. Uh, we are dirty. We get this illusion that we can clean ourselves up by getting rid of dirty fossil fuels or maybe getting rid of the white man or whatever. Pick it. Uh, we just do that. Everything's going to be clean. But no matter how much you wash away the sins of the world, 
uh, or the sins that, that seem to be out there, you still remain unclean. And, and the fundamental Christian insight is that that man is has so turned away from God that by himself he cannot get back to cleanliness. It, Athanasius wrote about this, and I think one of the most important books in Christianity called On the Incarnation. It's 130 pages long, in which he said there was a divine dilemma. This is, by the way, 50 years before St. Augustine. There's a divine dilemma. What was the divine dilemma? Man was so broken that he he can't get back to God. And so it presented a divine dilemma to God. He, God made this creature man, and he had become so errant, this creature man, that there's nothing he could do, not clean energy, uh, not organic farming, uh, you know, go pick it, not, not just on and on and on. All the things we try to do um, to, to evade sin and death, there's nothing he could do to, to come back to purity. And so God in his infinite love sent himself to bring him back. And, and th- if we don't do that, if we don't choose that option, then we're going to keep trying to purify the world. And identity politics is just the latest version of this. And it cannot work <laughs> just as the French Revolution did not work, just as Marxism, which killed several hundred million people, did not work. This too can't work. And my worry, and I just kind of gave it away, is does this lead to, to, to cataclysmic bloodshed? Because we're early in the game. Yeah. It could be that this keeps developing, that that the pure ones decide that those who believe in the traditional family, that male and female he made them is a, is a sex crime. We're going to we're going to kill those people. I mean, it could come to that, because if you really do believe that purity can be established in the world, there's no end to the violence you will do. Proof of which the proof of which is is communism and Marxism and Hitler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's yeah, right. Those those Jews. They're the dirty ones. We can just get rid of them. Everything's going to be fine. I mean, this is madness, but it proves all of these things prove the extent to which man knows that there's some deep problem of stain. It's back to the spiritual economy that there's no amount of free market advances and no amount of bowing down to the, you know, the, the greatness of our traditions. The traditions themselves are always sullied too. This is where the conservatives are just completely off. You know, I, I work with Bob Woodson, uh, uh, who's uh, one of the, I think, finest voices, uh, I would say in America, of course, but within the black conservative movement. And his argument against conservatives is they talk about the beauty and purity of the family and Edmund Burke and tradition. What happens if you came up for slavery? Or, or what happens if your family itself is broken? What happens if you have an alcoholic father or mother? What, what, you, you can't join the conservative movement because you don't have a tradition? This is ludicrous. But the two pillars of the conservative movement are free markets and, you know, the, the virtue of tradition. And I'm all for de- defending the, the, the fathers, as it were, the founding fathers of America. I think what they put together is is unheralded. And, and I believe that as far as I can tell, there's no problem that we have now that cannot be solved through normal constitutional means. Show me a problem we can't solve through the Constitution. We don't have to throw it out entirely. Right. So, so you know, what do, what do you do if you're Black American or if you're, uh, you know, or if you come from a broken home and you hear all these traditional conservatives who may come may have come from the, you know, the Ozzie and Harriet perfect family? Uh, well, most of us don't. So that message falls on deaf ears. And I think the the more powerful message is, no matter where you've come from, there, there's you don't have to dig very far to find brokenness. Yeah. Uh, but that's not the final word. 
And so it's not, you don't build a conservative movement on that. You build a, a, a Christian moment, a moment where we're reawakened to both the brokenness of man and the hope and the grace. Um, and, and that's the only way forward in my view. But you've got one group that wants to destroy that, as you say, and, and another group, well, the left wants to destroy it in one way and the alt-right wants to destroy it another way. Yeah. And here I am in the middle, <laughs> well, trying, to, trying to find middle ground. I don't think you're the only one in the middle. I no, think there's of course a lot not. of us that's what's, that, that that's are trying to find this balance, right? And 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 in our own way, through our own lived experience, trying to express this. I mean, my concern is that the far left tends to be, I guess they both tend to be destructive, but that's my concern, like you said, is that it just seems, everything seems to be very destructive. Tear it down. And and like the French Revolution, okay, fine, tear it down. But what are you going to put in its place? Yeah. Do you have a better idea to put in its place? Most people don't. Yeah, no, it's a negative project, not a positive project. It's right. so it's if we can just destroy the traditional family, the traditional church, everything will be fine. But there's never a plan. Yeah, um, and which means you know it means the lowest common denominator emerges, and you end up with violence and and some form of absolutism or totalitarianism always. So it's yeah, it's, we're very. It's a very very troubling moment, and yet it's a very pregnant moment too. That that we have to see this as a mission field again, where where people know there's something really deep that has to be worked out, and they're trying to do it through a political movement. Uh, it ultimately can't work that way. Uh, so we we have to show that there is a this third alternative. Yeah, and I think this is why, like you said, everything now. Every conversation somehow is political. You know, it's because that's our new God. My brother yeah. has said this, you know, a lot. He's like, politics is the new religion. I go, I agree. Yeah. So find a better religion. That's what I'm telling you. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. And, it, and until we, uh, until we able, we're able to restore and fortify religion, which is the place where the problem of purity and stain has to be worked through. We can't have what I call in the books, the politics of competence, right? Mm -hmm. So the politics of competence is I look at you and you look at me and, and we're supposed to build something together. And so, yeah, we're, we're kind of different. We kind of know who we are, kind of know who the other person is. Let's do something together. Uh, but we're never going to get to full transparency and we're never going to be able to build a purified world. That's the liberal politics of competence, as I call it. <laughs> the problem is, with identity politics, that's not possible because you're not looking at another person as somebody you're going to build something with. Mm. You're looking at another person and saying, are you pure or are you stained? Mm. And moreover, um, I will not engage you unless you celebrate, I mean, all these words, right? Celebrate and affirm my identity. And that's ludicrous because, well, first of all, that that arrangement, let's speak Tocqueville for a second, that arrangement where you where you could actually say to another person, I can walk away from you. That is only possible when you have a powerful state that promises to take care of you and you don't need your neighbor. That's the only condition where that's possible. Mm -hmm. So if you really, if you have this Tocquevillian world where you have decentralized power and in order to, to have our daily bread, we had to count on our neighbors, it's unthinkable that you would look at your neighbor and say, well, you have to affirm me first. It's just not how it works. So part of the reason why we have this problem is the state has grown so strong that we don't need to depend upon one another. If we had to depend upon one another, you know, I might say something that's partly true, like uh, I'm Lebanese, 
and but I would never say that that's the precondition for us, you know, you working together, digging a ditch. You you can start from these things. I don't know. I'm not opposed to people starting from some vague understanding of who they are. I don't like the term identity, but okay, I'm Lebanese, and you tell me what you're you're Greek, yes. Uh, so you know, I'm I'm that, and that's fine. You can start with that. But when we actually engage with other people, really building a world together, not just you know passing tweet or something like that, but living together on a daily basis, we, we discover that we don't know who we are ourselves until we engage with others, and we don't know who the other person is. And the problem is if we're isolated, our imagination runs wild, and so we develop demonic understandings of who the other is, and so you get massive political polarization. You can. There is a theological solution. We've been talking about it, but it's, that's not enough, because the theological claim of Christianity is that there is an incarnate God. Another way to put this is, therefore, all of human life is incarnate life. We're not. We're not spirits that drift over the world with universal freedom, as we talked about earlier. We're we're these embedded creatures. Um, and and what that would also mean is, then is that. While it's true, there is a kind of theological, let's call it a solution to this problem. Ultimately, this has to be an embedded solution mm -hmm. so that people are running around saying they have this Saturday or another identity. But in point of fact, when you actually have to engage with people, you realize, well, I thought they were that, but they're maybe they're this. And, and everything, everything tones down a little bit. And we realize we have to make compromises and what we thought we were we maybe aren't. And so all this business about self-affirming, it's back to your claim about narcissism, right? Narcissism, great. Narcissism presumes that the self can be sufficiently alone that you don't need others who are going to tell you, you know, no, you're wrong. You really are wrong. <laughs> so even, even there, you know, with narcissism is in a way made possible only when the state is sufficiently strong. We're back to the Julia video with, with in the Obama administration where we don't have to count on any other person. Mm -hmm. So it's the theological solution is part of this, but ultimately we have to get back to a, a Tocquevillian federal vision where it really matters who our neighbors are and, and we're engaged with them actively. Um, I'm going to set up, I think, this next fall, a club at, at Georgetown. Uh, Georgetown is highly polarized. Uh, and a lot of my, I'll call them non-leftist students. I don't even want to call them conservative students. But the students who are opposed to this wokeness, they're feeling completely out of sorts. And I understand that much of the demonization occurs not in the classroom, which is largely civil, only because the real fights are happening on social media. Mm. So I'm going to uh, start a club. And, and the condition for joining is you will cancel your social media accounts. Mm -hmm. uh, no text messaging. If you want to contact someone, you, you call because a call is much more frightening than a text message. Mm -hmm. A text message, you can pre you prepare something witty, you say it, uh, and then somebody spends 10 or 15 minutes or a couple of hours thinking about how they're going to respond to it in a very safe way. Mm -hmm. And then this goes back and forth. Uh, but the really difficult thing is just picking up the phone and calling someone, mm -hmm. saying, hey, how are you doing? And everybody's always put off guard when that happens. And but, but that's what we need to do. If we really want to be revolutionaries, if we want to start the virus that that undoes this whole thing, pick up a call, pick up a phone and call. Don't do text message. Get off social media. You won't be manically depressed if you get off social media. Uh, and probably and the my bad is actually probably the opposite. I've had students who have told me they've come at the beginning of class. These are especially girl students. 
and they're completely depressed. And I say, well, how much time are you on TikTok and Instagram? And they say, well, six or seven hours a day. And I say, so here's what you, oh yeah, no, the, the younger wow. generation, no. Oh, yeah, no, yes, they are. They're on the phone. They, they're living off this. They don't have, they're not living through their hands. They're living through their fingertips. No, it's really bad. And so I say to them, and I have 100% success rate. I say to them, okay, here's the deal. You're in my class. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to sign a contract, but I'm asking you to promise me that you will cancel all of your social media accounts for the rest of the semester. And without exception, they have come back to me and thank me from the bottom of the heart. And they've said, you've saved my life. Mm. We have to, we, we have to find some virus that, that kills the Borg, if you want to use that kind of analogy. And I think the virus is, we just turn it off. Now we have to come back to it at some point. I'm not saying that we can go back and live in burlap bags, but the problem is we're, we're all addicted to this stuff and addiction is not a healthy condition. And to carry the metaphor a little further, we probably have to go cold turkey mm-hmm. and it's gonna hurt and it's gonna be very disruptive and then once we discover that in point of fact, human health is incarnate, we, it's with our neighbors, uh, it's with those we love and, and the ones we love who we can't stand to because that's part of what's involved in love. Um, it, only when we get to that point, we return to health, then we can use this stuff, uh, the technology as a supplement, but not a substitute, which is another big theme of the book, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, but we've turned this all into a substitute for human relations, which is why we're all bo- bipolar. And so the only, and that's an addiction and we have to go cold turkey and it will be really hard, but we, we will awaken as, as an addict awakens from a drug addiction mm-hmm. and say, how have I lost these years of my life and you'll have a, a, a new grounded incarnate appreciation of human life. And, and then we can start up again and maybe do text messaging and do social media, but as a supplement to this embodied life that we have rather than a substitute for it, which is what we're all suffering from. We're all really sick, Jennifer. And, and we have to start by recognizing our sickness and, and this does not mean going to psychologists who will, who are, for the most part, will continue to steer you astray or, and, and above all, not okay. by going to pharmacologists, yeah, who will give you more and more drugs to put asleep this gaping wound that can only be healed by stepping back into concrete life. Uh, so, so the people who claim to be the helpers are the ones who will ultimately harm you. And, and now I'm, by the way, back to my musician years on the road, because I did take six and a half years to get through, but even then... I realized that that I had such a learning disability that those who wanted to help me were actually going to hurt me because they were going to cure me. And I concluded the, the far better course is for me to, to let my wiring rewire. My, my brain was going to finally figure out how to deal with the fact that I was born a little bit out of sorts. And, and I did that. I didn't let those who were going to help me help me. Unfortunately, I was not diagnosed with probably a severe case of ADHD. And eventually, by the time I got to be in my late 20s, which is very late in the game, um, things began to come together, and, and I'm thankful for that. So, so these wounds that we want to get healed are, can be healed, but not in the way that the helpers oftentimes want to heal them. And that's why it's a very, very dangerous moment when you realize that you're ill. The great question becomes, then, who do you go to uh, to help you heal? And my answer was just get the hell out, go be a musician on the road, disappear 
for a few years, let the wiring, uh, rewiring take place and then come back. Uh, because at that point in my life, the church, it was, it was, it was inconceivable for me that I would turn to the church. And yet, and yet, why did I carry around St. Augustine's confessions with me? I mean, it's really weird. And why did I apply to graduate school and, and get into and take lots of classes in, in a theology department? When I, if somebody were to ask me, well, so are you religious? I would have laughed. And yet there, I was drawn in spite of myself towards something that was healthy. So we're in a moment where everybody's sick uh, for, for all sorts of different reasons. And the churches are, are equally sick. Mm. And so what do you do? So we'll see, uh, but I'm hopeful, I will say. Yeah. And I love, I think what you point to is that surrender and, and that, that I, I, I went through a couple therapists in the past three years and I finally said enough, I'm fine. Yes, I'm broken, but I had to stop going to these people because they were doing more. I, I'm like, who's, who's the therapy for right now? I'm pretty sure it's not me. It's you. (laughs) Yes. And, yeah. and, I and it, that's a therapist who I think, you know, is very self-aware and works in a very different way, um, has a very healthy relationship with her work um, yeah. and is and is truly doing good. But I think a majority of therapists, it's for them. Yeah. And generally speaking, the, those who go into it are not exactly models of health. No. Um, yeah, it's a big problem. That's what I said. It's they're just, I mean, I can see that in my own teaching and yoga and trying to and coaching. And I'm like, who's this for? Pretty sure this is for me. You know, <laughs> I, I can look back and say that now. And it's so nice to not have a career. What I say now is I my career is no longer based on my wounding. Right. You know? Wow. And wow. so like I don't feel like I'm trying to heal myself through my work now through writing. And it's 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 a huge shift. Yeah. Well, that that's it's very interesting. So you're not so the new work that you're doing is it's it's not about healing yourself vicariously by healing others. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's I try. I, I I hope I'm doing some good. I right. you know it's not for now. It's not about me anymore. It doesn't feel right. like it's about me. It's I there's that surrender. I'm most mostly I'm just a happier person. I'm more fun to be around. <laughs> just. <laughs> Yeah. Um, my relationships are better. I, you know, it's that inexplicable. I can't tell you what happened, but there was a huge change in my heart. And um, yeah, like you said, you just allow the process to happen, you know, without trying to force anything. Yeah. But, but simultaneously see, you know, knowing that I don't think you ever stop being a seeker in a way. Right. But, but now seeking on the right path. Yeah, it's going to get you someplace. Yeah, and it's not forcing it. Um, So, I mean, there's so many, like I said, there's so much good stuff in there. And you touched on some of the um, the the liberal competent. What is it? The what do you call it? Liberal politics of liberal competence. Politics of liberal competence. You touched on that, and then um, addiction. And what was the third thing? Bipolarity, which is kind of yeah. 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 So we touched on all of it, but I know we could have gone a little deeper in all of it. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. And maybe we can do a part two. Sure. What are you, what are you working on now? I I think you said you had another idea for a book. So, uh, 
one of my conclusions from not only writing the book, but talking to people for the last couple of years about the book is that, is that it's, it's probably not going to matter whether Trump or Biden win in 2024, that our problems are run so deep uh, that I think only a, a transformation at the personal level is going to get us there. Now, this is not a recommendation not to vote, but it's a recommendation to start looking even deeper within and asking whether the source of the problems we witness out there are actually in here. So the book is going to be called The Gentle Seduction of Tyranny. Mm. And the the argument that's often made in conservative circles is that the American founding was great. Everything was fine until those German ideas called progressivism came into the country. And, and that's what soiled everything. And if we could just return to the founding fathers, everything's going to be fine. And, and while in, at some level, I agree with that. What's interesting is that you know, the greatest book about America ever written, Tocqueville's Democracy in America, contains within it, I have found 20 reasons why the state will keep growing stronger and stronger and individuals become more and more impotent, lonely, and isolated. And so what he saw in the 1830s was that the problem that we're going to have doesn't appear or won't appear because there's some foreign ideas that come in and, and make us sullied and impure, to use that kind of language. It's The problem is already there right from the beginning. Yeah. And so you, ha- you can have this fantastic constitution in place, but if you don't have citizens that are truly capable of self-government and can avoid things like envy, because envy turns out to be one of the major reasons why the state keeps growing stronger and stronger. If you don't have antidotes to these pathologies of the democratic soul, and he uses that term, uh, then it doesn't matter whether the Republicans or the Democrats win. You're going to end up with a kinder and gentler tyranny at the end of history. It's the movie Julia from the Obama administration, where you're taken care of cradle to grave. Uh, you're made to feel good about yourself. Uh, you get you get to download Netflix and and, and binge watch. And you'll get food security, uh, but you'll be utterly lonely and isolated. And you'll know something is terribly wrong, but you but you'll have no idea what it is because you have no human capacity for love and friendship and enduring suffering and things like that. It's a very dark picture that Tocqueville saw, but he saw that the the cause of it is way before the progressives arrived. So so there's a gentle seduction toward tyranny that we're we're all succumbing to. And a seduction is interesting because you're drawn to it, even though you know you probably shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm going to write about next. Another cheery book. <laughs> I'm sure there will be. But like you said, there's always hope. I mean, yeah, it's always yeah. hope. So exactly. we'll end on a hopeful note. Thank you so much. Where can people find you? Uh, so I, not surprisingly, I have no social media presence. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you can write me an email at mitchellj at georgetown.edu one l mitchell j uh but that's 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 it or you can find I mean, my office numbers there uh, <laughs> i was gonna say or call you up call. on the phone yeah give me a call I'm, I'm in the georgetown directory but yeah i have no social media presence whatsoever yeah if, if it's a supplement fantastic if it's a supplement great if it's a substitute then we're all in trouble yeah all right thank you so much my pleasure I just love the way Joshua's mind and heart works. Thank you so much for listening to what I thought to be a fascinating conversation. Joshua has so much more to say on these important issues, so stay tuned as we've been batting around the idea of another chat soon. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it, tell a friend, and of course, leave a kind word in the comments section. Always feel free to drop me a line with any questions or suggestions for topics or guests you may have. Until next time, stay connected.